My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Welcome to B-Side Reflections. So, this B-Side Reflection is about narrative power and the biblical story of Joseph. Now, I've been vexed by a realization, and this realization is that I've been conditioned with a narrative that does not serve me as a living, breathing human being. As I rested my head against the shower wall, I considered the possibilities of life without the boundaries set by society. You know, most people that are considered successful seem to be those who figure out a narrative that coincides with the existing overall narrative. For example, someone figuring out how to game the commercial banking system until the bubble bursts. Corporations have invested hundreds of billions of dollars into all three branches of U.S. government and governments abroad for the last 60 years to get policies in place that transfer the burden of risk to future generations based on spending potential. Obviously, this system uses slave wages as a benchmark for the current market potential. The idea is to force a great majority of households to spend as much as they earn, thereby creating data that supports the narrative that corporations are a fundamental part of growth in society. Unfortunately, it is the nature of stories to end. But instead of allowing for new stories to be told, corporations fight to reboot the same economic narrative using new technology. I have to admit, I'm not a practicing Christian, but when I begin to think about the solutions to economic inequality currently being discussed, I made a connection to the biblical story of Joseph. This connection is one that I have never considered because I have taken the traditional rags-to-riches narrative at face value. The story of Joseph has been used in many an inspirational sermon in black communities since the days of slavery. The narrative continues today. Many people still believe that corporations operate meritocracies. That is, that their special skill or their commitment to excellence will eventually garner enough recognition and therefore access to better resources. No matter how much empirical and anecdotal evidence we have to the contrary, people still believe that there is a direct correlation between hard work and material resources access. To this end, submit it for your approval, or at least your analysis. One Joseph, son of Israel, dreamer, boaster, sold into slavery by his brothers at the age of 17, a boy that within 25 years would transform Egypt into a corporate hegemonji, one whose gift of vision and understanding would motivate hundreds of millions throughout history, a legend that I maintain was pressed into the bondage of slavery 
until the day he died at age 110. No, you say? But wasn't he the second most powerful man in Egypt, you say? Second only to the Pharaoh himself, you say? Well, let's take a look at what the King James Version says. Genesis 37, verses 26 to 28. Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by the Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they bought Joseph into Egypt. So here is where Joseph's brothers sold him to the merchants. And then we go to Genesis 37, 36. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Pontifer, the officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So the merchants sell Joseph to a member of the administration class in Egypt. Now over the four year period, he earns Pontifer's trust and eventually, according to Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6, took over administration of Pontifer's estate. But then in verse 7, Joseph runs afoul of Pontifer's wife. Now we know that Joseph is a man of integrity, so he refuses his master's wife. She eventually attempts to rape him, and he decides to flee. She gathers the other male servants on the estate and lies to them. But listen to what she says in Genesis 39, 14. That she called unto the men of her house and spat unto them, saying, See, he, talking about Pontifer, hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. So, I'm assuming since she calls Joseph a Hebrew, um, that Jewish people are on the lowest rung of the caste system. And of course, everybody else that's serving in the house is probably Egyptian. And they were probably a little upset that, you know, Joseph got promoted to head administrator of the estate. So then she repeats this story to Pontifer when he returns. And, you know, I have a tough time believing that Pontifer actually took her seriously. He's in charge of security for the kingdom. And I'm pretty sure they both got their fill of side action. And Joseph being in the condition that he was in as far as his social standing, I think that if Pontifer actually believed that he attempted to rape his wife, he would have killed Joseph. Instead, what happened? Well, let's consider the circumstances. Pontifer's wife had already spread this lie before Pontifer got home. So now the lie has taken on a life of its own, 
and everybody knows. So now if Pontifer does nothing, then his reputation is on the line. So what he decides to do instead is put Joseph in prison, which is part of Pontifer's responsibilities. And then eventually Joseph is overseeing the prisoners. Now I want to point out that Pontifer is still benefiting from Joseph's skill and work ethic. He didn't sell or punish or even confine Joseph. He just moved him out of sight of everyone else. Now in chapter 40, we find that the Pharaoh's chief baker and chief butler have been imprisoned for upsetting their master. They don't say what they did, but Pontifer then instructs Joseph to serve them. Now, I have to believe that it's around this time that Joseph realizes that he's valuable and that he's never uh, going to be set free by Pontifer. So when the butler and the baker tell him about their dreams, Joseph interprets the meaning of the dream and then asks the butler to tell the Pharaoh about it. Joseph's interpretations come true and the butler returns to the service of the Pharaoh. And the Bible says that the butler forgot about Joseph. Mm. It makes more sense to me that maybe the butler didn't want to press his luck with the Pharaoh. Like he didn't want to ask the Pharaoh for anything. He just wanted to be there and be grateful and serve. Um, Because from his viewpoint, he could have just as easily suffered the chief baker's fate. But don't worry. Joseph would get his audience with the Pharaoh two years later. So this brings us to chapter 41. And Pharaoh is haunted by the fabled twin nightmares of corn and cow cannibalism. I want to point out that the butler only mentioned Joseph when no one else in the kingdom could interpret the nightmare. Imagine how richly he was rewarded for providing an answer to the Pharaoh's distress. So Joseph is summoned to appear before Pharaoh. He listens to the dream. And for the first time, we see him combine his gift, dream interpretation, with his skill, administration. Not only does he interpret the dream, but he also suggests a plan of action that will save the kingdom. As a reward, Pharaoh makes Joseph the governor of Egypt in order to execute the suggested plan. Joseph is given an Egyptian makeover, complete with an Egyptian identity and all of the trappings of royalty. At 30 years old, his authority was second only to the Pharaoh. And Joseph's plan was a monumental success. So successful that people came from surrounding countries to buy the surplus food. So now Joseph has created an economic windfall in the middle of a global crisis. Sound familiar? Now we come to chapter 42, where Sefna Panaha, um, Joseph's Egyptian identity, is selling the corn and happens to see his brothers. Now imagine 
he's not seen them in almost 15 years. Imagine the whirlpool of conflicted emotions he must have been feeling when he confirmed that it was indeed his family. Imagine that he cannot reveal himself because he is a representative of the Pharaoh. Now Joseph spends chapters 43 and 44 putting his brothers through a ridiculous amount of acid tests to see his younger brother Benjamin. During the course of which his brothers repent selling Joseph into slavery. In chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals his identity for a tearful reunion. Now, I always wondered about his behavior in chapters 43 and 44. On the surface, it seemed way too petty as a method of revenge. And it also was well, kind of a weird flex because his brothers assume that God is punishing them for what they did. But the whole point should be that they know that Joseph has the authority to punish them. Joseph also dramatically breaks down several times before the actual reveal. It is apparent that he misses his family, but if he does, then why doesn't he just travel to Canaan to see them? That's when it hit me. He's still a slave. He has the Pharaoh's permission to travel throughout Egypt, but he cannot leave the country. His entire identity is predicated on his proximity to and the pleasure of the Pharaoh. I'm sure he remembers well the fate of the chief baker. So what does he do? Well, in chapter 46, he convinces his family to move to Egypt. Because, look at me, he says, I'm doing well. Don't stay in Canaan and starve. Move up here. I'll talk to the Pharaoh. He even coaches his brothers on what to say when the Pharaoh asks them about their occupations. So in chapter 47, Joseph's brothers follow his instructions word for word. And during their audience with the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh lets them stay in Egypt as long as they tend his livestock. I want to be clear about this. In verse 6, Pharaoh says, The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land make thy father and brethren dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, make them rulers over my cattle. Then verse 11 says, And Joseph placed his father and his brethren, and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. A possession in the land of Egypt, not possession of the land in Egypt. His family went from owning property in Canaan to becoming employees, I mean slaves, in Egypt. Joseph made sure that everybody in his family had food, but then it gets worse. Joseph spends the rest of the chapter using the famine to systematically enslave the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations. When people run out of money to buy food, 
He forces them to trade their assets like livestock, land, and eventually their physical bodies. The Pharaoh eventually owns everything and everyone except the priesthood, who had gotten their land from the Pharaoh originally. I guess the priests saw what Joseph was doing and they protected themselves by not selling the land. Then Joseph created a sharecropping system where one-fifth of the bounty of the land would be given to the Pharaoh. Joseph did all this as an agent of the Pharaoh. There is at least one last piece of evidence that I would like to present. In chapter 48, Israel wants to be buried in Canaan and makes Joseph swear to do so. And in chapter 50, Joseph has to beg Pharaoh to let him bury Israel in Canaan. Pharaoh agrees. Finally, the story ends with Joseph being buried in Egypt. You see, he could not even choose to be buried with his father and mother. I'd never appreciated my gift for reading narratives and gleaning information from them. I guess at 45 years of age, there is more time to be reflective about life's personal experiences and empathize with the motivations of others. However, some behavior should not be condoned. Upon not much closer inspection, the character of Joseph should be far more infamous. This brash kid sold into slavery, sexually assaulted, falsely accused, thrown into prison, used his skill to serve the Pharaoh of Egypt, reducing everyone around him to the station of a slave. Everyone thought that Joseph was royalty. I mean, he certainly looked like it, and his decrees were heard far and wide. But in the end, his exceptionalism sealed his fate. He had become too valuable to let go. This man decimated the self-esteem of the people of a nation. So, my three book recommendations this week are The Value of Everything by Mariana Metsukato. So, she talks about the history of corporations and how they have slowly eroded the value of the working class and labor and what we can do in order to fix problems with innovation. The next book is The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman. Now, this book really broadened my horizons because he talks about how how we use our senses is not the same as how our brains interpret the information. So we see, like right now I'm looking at trees and the ground and my, the steering wheel in my car. And I can reach up and I can touch my steering wheel. But the inputs that go into my brain from my visual and my sense of touch are not reflective of the image that my brain reads in being able to touch the steering wheel. It's basically like looking at the desktop of a computer 
and you have an icon for your email and you double click on the icon to open the email you're double clicking on that icon you're not actually clicking on an email box you're there's a, a certain set of commands that are happening behind the scenes in the computer that gets you that information the last book that i'll recommend is how to do nothing by jenny odell and this is a really wonderful book that a millennial has written i'll say and she talks about how important it is to re-engage with the world around you the next time you hear people talking about how the senior management or directors of the company should be more representative of their customer base i want you to think about the biblical story of joseph ceos presidents prime ministers executive producers or anyone else in the upper echelon of a national organization is an employee they do what the shareholders want them to do they are slaves although there are exceptions like mark zuckerberg they are few and far between i encourage you to read the story of joseph just once all the way through compared to what is happening today let me know your thoughts i can be reached by email at themjgshow@mjgstorycreation.com if you like this episode please share it and don't forget to like favorite or subscribe until next week take care of each other the m jason graham show is written and produced by m jason graham the theme was composed by travis d artis this has been the m jason graham show i'm m jason graham